Well, if you're just joining us today, we're preaching through the book of Romans. What a good book. And we just concluded Romans chapter 9. But here's what I want to do. Romans chapter 9 is all about God's electing love. And this doctrine of election can be unsettling and confusing to people. So before we press on into Romans 10 further, I want to take a few more weeks to do what I hope will be to amplify what I think are the biggest implications of this doctrine. If you've been sitting there thinking, oh, why even talk about this? It's confusing. It's unsettling. It's divisive. Let's not even talk about it. Oh, no, 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 no. A, it's in the Bible. We don't want to skip anything that's in the Bible. B, there are some incredible implications of this truth. When you get a hold of it, it does matter in some marvelous ways. So I want to talk about what some of those ways are in the next couple of weeks. How does this truth matter? And you know what? I want to welcome Holly and Noah Fennell. Hello, raise your hands. They were in our church for years and then they abandoned us and went to Savannah. But it was a good cause for a job. All right, it's good to see you guys. Glad you're here. How does this truth matter? All I want to do today now is to drive a stake in the ground about the importance of staying balanced on this doctrine. The importance of staying balanced. But I would, I would say to you, on any doctrine, on any doctrine in the Bible, it is important to stay balanced. But especially on this doctrine, we must stay balanced and hold to all that the Bible says. And here's what I believe. If you choose to go with the Bible and read, and I say this all the time, but I'm going to say it again today. How much of the Bible do I want you to read? Oh, say it again. If you'll read all of it, I believe there are many places that it will bump you right up against some mystery. And you know what? As human beings, we don't like mystery. We want everything resolved, solved, fully explained, diagrammed, systematized. Problem? You end up just pushing God to the side. And many times you end up discounting some pieces of truth in order to just emphasize one that you're most comfortable with. When you hold to how much of the Bible? All of it. I believe you will find yourself instead. Make sure this is not your goal. If this is your goal. I can tell you right now you're going to be very frustrated. The goal is not to be able to fully explain everything you encounter in the Bible. But don't hear me saying, turn off your brain. We don't think. Hope you've sensed from me. I'm a thinking man. I think the Bible calls us to think and wrestle and learn and grow. But listen to me, my friend. It doesn't matter how much you think and wrestle and grow. You will still hit points where what you need to do is bow and worship. When you get to those places where you say, I'm thinking, 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 praying, 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 reading, 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 studying, 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 and it still doesn't fully make sense to me, what should I do? Let me help you. Worship. Worship. And say, God, you're God, and I'm not. But I'm not going to let go of any part of your truth just because I can't fully reconcile it and explain it. It doesn't logically make sense to me completely. Hello? If everything you read in the Bible about God and his ways and salvation make complete sense to you, you got a very small God who probably can't solve your biggest problems and is not worthy of your worship. I'm glad that there's some places where, where it's like, 
Okay. All right. What should I do? I'm going to worship. And, but don't hear, turn off your brain. Here's how I'm going to worship. With my Bible still open for the rest of my life, saying, God, show me more. Give me greater insight. Illumine me. Help me. But I probably will never understand it all. I want to keep growing. And until I see you face to face, I'll submit to what your word says instead of trying to make it say what I'm comfortable with. Does that make sense? That's what I want us to do as a church family. And to do that, here's what's going to happen. As you read your Bible, how much? All of it. You're going to run into places in the Bible that talk about God's electing love. You're going to run into that word election, not just in Romans 9, all over the place. And when you see it, instead of saying, well, that can't mean what I think it means. Just say, yeah, it means what it looks like it means. But if you'll read your Bible, how much of it? All of it. it. You're going to run into those places that say, Woo, it sounds like it's all up to me and I've got a choice to make. Whosoever will may come, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become sons of God. Come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you under my wings. It sounds like he's just pleading with people to come and people must choose to come and repent. Yeah, yeah, both. And if you will read your Bible... And refuse to let go of either oops, either end of this theological truth called salvation. If you hold both truths in tension, you'll find yourself standing right where I am with some mystery. Human nature doesn't like mystery. We like everything resolved. That's why if you're into music, and I am... There's certain composers that I don't care for because there's a lot of dissonance. It's like, eh, resolve that chord. Resolve it. Don't leave it. We want it to go. There's something in us. We want everything resolved. And so our tendency is let go of whatever I can't quite understand and overly emphasize what I do so that it makes sense to me. But when you do that, you've stepped away from the Bible And you've put together a system. And folks, I hope those of you that have been here a while know this. But if you're new, I want you to hear it. Grace Fellowship Church is not about promoting or protecting a system. We are about lifting up and promoting a Savior. A Savior, Jesus Christ. And preaching and teaching the Bible. How much of it? All of it. We don't have a system we're trying to promote or protect. And so we avoid verses that looks like it pokes holes in what we say most around here. We're going to preach it all. We're going to teach it all. We're going to hold to all of it, letting God's word be the authority. Jerry Bridges, in his excellent book, Trusting God, says this. The relationship of the sovereign will of God to the freedom and moral responsibility of people is one of those mysteries. Basil Manley, one of the founding fathers of the Southern Baptist Convention, while commenting, commenting on this difficult subject in one of his sermons, said, quote, The scriptures do not undertake to explain mysteries. They leave them unexplained. There is a difference between difficulties and mysteries. Difficulties may be removed. Mysteries cannot without a new revelation or the bestowment of higher intellect. Folks, There are difficulties in the Bible. 
that I want to learn more, wrestle more, learn some historical background, learn some culture customs, learn some of the original language maybe, and I work my way through some difficulties. Difficulties can be resolved. Like, for instance, it's very common for people to say, oh, the Bible's full of contradictions. Let me help you right there. When you hear that at work or at the gym or on the plane, say, show me one. Almost always, that's the end of the conversation. They have heard that and they are repeating that. But every now and then you'll run into someone who has one. Don't get scared. Almost always what I've already been trying to teach you will resolve it. Back it up from that verse and read some verses leading up to it and stretch it out and keep reading. Back it up, stretch it out, and the context itself will resolve itself. In almost every instance. There are difficulties that can be resolved. But don't cross the line and consider everything a difficulty to be resolved. There are some mysteries to be submitted to. And it stirs us with worship. God, I don't don't fully understand that, but wow. Okay, you are God and I am not. And I'm going to take all of your word and believe it. Bridges goes on to say there's no conflict in the Bible between his sovereignty and our responsibility. Both Concepts are taught with equal force and with never an attempt to reconcile them. That's what I want to do here at Grace Fellowship. And I've been here almost 20 years now. I'm in my 20th year. And we've been trying to teach both sides with equal emphasis. I want us to emphasize exactly what the Bible emphasizes. No more, no less. And not just what we think will promote or protect our particular system. Or theological preference. See, too many people, if you scratch and you poke, too many people have a personal theology that can be no bigger than what they fully understand and can diagram and map out and explain. Or what they're comfortable with. You know, so often people say, well, I'm just not comfortable with a God like that. Sorry. I want to know what God, who God truly is. I don't want to say, what am I most comfortable with? And we'll say he's that. He reveals himself to us. It's my task to continually learn what he's revealed of himself. Not decide how I want him to be and say, well, that, I don't have a God like that. Read your Bible, all of it. And you're going to run into some things, listen, that you're not comfortable with. That don't sit well. That are, are unsettling. But that's where we want to bow and worship with open Bibles, saying, is there any more I can learn? What am I missing? But in the meantime, I'll worship. While I hope to keep getting greater insights, I'll worship. And then knowing that 1 Corinthians 13 teaches us, I'm never going to fully get it. Because he says, now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. And here's what I truly believe. You're in a church that says doctrine matters, Right? This is not the church that says, oh, don't give me doctrine, just give me Jesus. Oh, just shut up. All right? Doctrine matters. Apart from doctrine, we don't know what Jesus we're talking about. But, but, you're also in a church that does not believe we are going to be able to systematize everything. As we hold to that doctrine, as we study, as we learn, we want to hold to it humbly and say, I could be wrong. Hope that doesn't shock you that if, if some of you come and you push back on me on some of the, 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 what I've been teaching here, I'll tell you, I could be wrong. But until then, I'm going to teach what I believe is true. And here's what I really think. When we get to heaven, I think we're all going to find out, oh, 
I was a little wrong. You were really wrong. No, I was a little wrong. You were a little wrong. And what's actually true was not exactly what any of us thought, right? Why? Because I'm interpreting and thinking everything through a fallen, broken, sinful mind, and so are you. And we're just saying, Lord, teach me, show me, help me. I want you to hold to doctrine. I want you to say it matters, but I want you to have a humble orthodoxy. Does that make sense? And I think that's what you see in the scriptures that he calls us to. So, how can we stay balanced? How can we stay balanced on this great truth about this salvation, this theological rope called salvation, that one end of this rope, the scriptures truly teach, God elects, God's sovereign. The other end of that rope truly says over and over, come to me, obey, repent, believe, whosoever will may come. How are we going to keep in balance these truths? There's a number of ways that we could do this, but I want to share with you three. Three ways that I think, if we'll do this, and, and make sure you understand, I can't pull this off on my own. The elders can't pull this off. I need all of us as a church family to do this or it won't happen. So that's why I'm talking to you about it. How can we, as a church family, keep these truths in balance? Number one, keep all the biblical truth in focus. Don't start cherry picking verses. You know what I mean by that? It's just like you just pick out the verses that that agree with what you think and you just kind of ignore all those others and turn a blind eye to them. Don't. Don't read the Bible selectively and randomly turning a blind eye to things that don't fit as well with your theological system. Read it all, even parts that don't sit well with you. And as you're reading, I want you to pay careful attention to three areas. I think if you'll read the Bible, how much of it? All of it. I want you to be alert to three areas. Number one, pay attention and take another look at man's spiritually dead condition. Take another look at man's spiritually dead condition. And what I mean by that is just how dead is dead. I mean, the Bible says that no one would argue and say the Bible doesn't say we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Everyone would say, yeah, 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 that's right. We're dead in trespasses. Here's the problem. As you listen to people explain their theology, it becomes evident, though they say we're dead, it's actually more we're weak, feeble, sick, limping, because we can still do something. We still do something. It's still incumbent on us to do something. That's what begins to be evident in their theology. Listen, the gospel of God's saving grace didn't just revive us like smelling salts. The gospel didn't come and just revive us because we were spiritually unconscious and it revived us. The gospel of God's saving grace raised our stinking spiritual corpses from the dead. You were in the spiritual morgue. There was a tag tied around your spiritual toe. The white sheet had been pulled up over your face. Your eyes had been sewn shut You were spiritually dead. When's the last funeral you were a part of that you saw the dead person do something? Just sit up for a moment and say, not exactly right, that story you're telling right there. Let me tweak that. I know I'm I'm dead, but I'm only mostly dead. It doesn't happen. They're dead. Can't do 
anything. That's what the Bible teaches. See, most people, if you'll listen and ask a few questions, the condition they have men and women in spiritually is not severe enough. It really is more sick. So just how dead is dead? And how much can dead people do? Well, I think a scene from the classic movie, Princess Bride, can teach us a lot. While at the same time being my opportunity to show forevermore the value of this classic movie. (laughs) To people like my sweet wife, who's like, it's stupid. She will not watch it. I have to watch it all by myself. It's like, oh, no, 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 honey. This is a great movie. I can quote entire passages from Princess Bride. It's forevermore. Now you'll know the value of this movie. Because there's a scene in this movie where Miracle Max, played by Billy Crystal, tries to do his magic with a dead body. Check it out. And we laugh, but that truly is what many Christians believe when they say, oh yeah, we're dead. Mostly dead. Which is not the same as completely dead. Mostly dead is still a little alive. The Bible doesn't say that. Dead, dead, dead. Nothing we could do. Let me show you. You say, Brad, show me that in the Bible. So glad you asked. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And look at this. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning right there in verse 1. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning right there in verse 1. And you, he made alive, who were what? Say it again. Say it again. You, he made alive, who were dead. In trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. You're no better than anybody else. I'm no better than anybody else. All of us in the same category. Two of my favorite words coming next. Say it. Say it again. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, has made us, say it, alive. Even when we were dead in trespasses, has made us alive 
and raised us up together and seated us together with him in the heavenly places in Christ in order that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in kindness towards us. And then verses that many Christians do know. For by grace are you saved through faith and not of works, lest any man should, what? Boast. It's a gift of God. It's a gift of God. You don't earn it. You weren't alive. He found you. He came to you. He rescued you. See, get this. You didn't find God. He's never been lost. God found you. God found you and breathed new life into you and raised you from the spiritual dead and changed you and keeps you. So take another look as you read your Bible at man's spiritually dead condition and factor that into whatever you're saying or believing about this amazing, glorious gift and mystery called salvation. But secondly, take another look at God's sovereign grace. Take another look at God's sovereign grace. And in our same passage, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, we can learn something here. Folks, our salvation is not a little bit of grace. It is all of grace. All of grace. For by grace are you saved through faith. You say, ah, see there, Pastor Brad, I do do something. I have to exercise faith. I believe. I, that's what I bring. Well, he answers that for you. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, that faith that you have, that faith that you exercised, where'd you get it? Why did you have it? And see, it's very helpful when you begin to understand and you can be so much more patient and compassionate and loving and prayerful when you realize if God hadn't opened my eyes and taken out my stony heart and given me faith to believe, I would never have exercised that faith. Well, you're, you don't have one leg up on somebody else. Were you smarter than other people? It's like, why did you believe? And do you get frustrated sometimes thinking, oh my goodness, how do I say this to you one more time? Coworker or good friend or college roommate or heaven, hell, Jesus died, duh. I believed, why don't you? I'll tell you why they don't. By grace are you saved through faith and that, not of yourselves. And you'll be much more loving. And you'll be much more on your knees praying for your lost friends saying, Oh God, open their eyes. Take out the heart of stone. Grant them this good gift. Save them. And you'll be more patient. My sweet grandmother all the way into her 80s would just keep saying, I just, I don't believe. I don't believe. Sweet as can be, but I don't believe. I don't believe. I didn't go nuts saying, Grandma, are you an idiot? Like you're near death. Come on, pray the prayer. Ask Jesus in your heart. Please pray after me. Dear Lord, dear Lord. And that's what some Christians run around doing. Getting people to parrot little prayers so that then they can sleep good and say, I know my son, I know my daughter, I know my grandmother is okay because she prayed the prayer. Please. Can you parrot words and not mean it at all and have no idea what you're doing? Yes, it happens all the time. And then they're in a worse condition than they were before because they believe something just happened because you told them, just say these words and you'll be okay. I prayed. I prayed for God to save my grandmother. I prayed and I kept sharing the gospel and my dad and his brother, Uncle Dave, drove down to Florida repeatedly to share the gospel with her some more in the rest home. 
We share the gospel, but we pray that God would ignite it and would grant them faith to believe. You're not bad. If you're here and you're a Christian, woo! Say, God, thank you. Thank you for making me alive. Thank you for giving me faith. Thank you that it made sense to me. Thank you that Jesus was lovely. Thank you that I had a desire for this. That's because God was working in you. Wow. And then you'll be compassionate and loving and prayerful towards unbelievers that you're sharing with. Take another look at God's sovereign grace. Thirdly, as you read the Bible, how much of it? All of it. Take another look as you read your Bible at your responsibility, your responsibility as human beings to either embrace or reject. Embrace or reject the free offer of the gospel. Get to Romans 9, where we've been for these weeks, but just go one more chapter to Romans 10, which, Lord willing, we will get to this year. Romans 10. I'll give you a little sneak preview. Romans 10. All right. I'm not going to take the time to read Romans 9 because we read it a couple Sundays. And so Romans 9 is all about God's electing love. Well, in the same letter by the same author, Paul, you get to Romans 10 and wow, it's like believe, come, obey, follow you. You, you got a choice to make. Look what it says in Romans 10, beginning in verse 9. That if... See, that word signals to you there's a, condi- there's a condition here. There's something you've got to do. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes to righteousness and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. For the scripture says... Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Praise God. Those were the two big human categories in that day. We could say there's no distinction between ethnicity, gender, economics, education. This free offer of salvation, this good news goes out to all human beings without distinction. Nobody has an advantage The ground is level at the foot of the cross and outside the tomb that is empty. And the offer goes out. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Go back to Gospel of John chapter 1. Gospel of John, chapter 1. It was talking about Jesus coming into this world and being the Word who was God and took on flesh. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 11. He came to his own, the Jewish people, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe on his name. Go a couple chapters to the right to John chapter 3, one of the, probably the most famous verse in all the Bible. Probably right up there with Psalm 23, the chapter, the Lord is my shepherd. John 3:16. For God so loved the elect. Now, what's it say? The world. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. 
that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. We need to keep all the biblical truth in focus. Don't let go of either ends of this theological rope called salvation. Read your Bible, all of it, and just let it speak for itself. Let, let it speak for itself. Let it emphasize what it wants to emphasize wherever you're reading. Charles Simeon was a godly pastor who lived in the early 1800s. And he pastored the same church for 49 years. Got to respect that. Wow. I don't think I'm going to be able to pull that off. I'm already 52. Only been here 20. I don't think my walker's going to get up these steps. Probably not going to happen. But I'll tell you, one of the reasons I think he was able to do it. There were many, but here's one. He was very loving and he worked hard to keep all the biblical truth in balance with his church family. Listen to what John Piper says about him in his biography. Few preachers have maintained the balance between God's sovereign election and man's responsibility better than Charles Simeon of Cambridge in the first half of the 19th century. He lived and ministered in a time when the Arminian-Calvinist controversy was bitter. And he warned his congregation of the danger of forsaking the Bible in favor of a theological system. Now, don't check out on me if I just lost you with two big words. Simply put, you may have never heard those words before. And if you haven't, I say, praise God. I wish more had not. Seriously. But if you have heard of it, then simply Calvinism was represented by John Calvin, who lived in the 1500s and was mayor of Geneva. And he wrote Calvin's Institutes. And he emphasized this side readily, the sovereignty of God in election. Arminian, not Armenian, that's a country. Arminian, that's based from Jacobus Arminius, a Dutch theologian that lived at the same time as Calvin. And they disagreed strongly. And Jacobus Arminius believed that people are not completely dead. Even prior to Princess Bride, he was there. They're just mostly dead. And they still can do something. They're not completely depraved. There's a little bit of good. These two men disagreed and those became two camps. Calvinist, Arminian. Now I hope you've noticed those aren't words that I throw around here all the time. Because I've asked our church family, let's not do that. Let's not use man-made words. Let's keep using Bible words. But in that day, there was a controversy already. He believed in God's sovereign election as it's presented in Scripture, but he said that his invariable rule was this. He said, I want to endeavor to give to every portion of the Word of God its full and proper force without considering which scheme it favors or whose system it's likely to advance. He went on to say, my endeavor is to bring out of Scripture what is there and not to thrust in what I think might be there. I have a great jealousy on this head never to speak more or less than I believe the mind of the Spirit in the passage is that I'm expounding. Now listen to what he says next about keeping these two truths in balance. He says, when I come to a text which speaks of election, 
I delight myself in the doctrine of election. Instead of finding ways, how can I explain that away and say that can't mean what it really means? I delight myself in election. When the Bible exhorts me to repentance and obedience and indicates my freedom of choice and action, I give myself up to that side of the equation. And then he gives what I think is a great illustration. In his day, industry and factories were just kicking in with faster ways to do things than what they've been doing. Industrial revolution. He says, as wheels in a complicated machine. You ever looked at the backside of a clock or or, a machine and see gears or wheels that are moving in opposite directions and yet they're They're working together for a common purpose. He says, as wheels in a complicated machine may move in opposite directions and yet serve a common end, so may truths apparently opposite be perfectly reconciled with each other and equally serve the purposes of God in the accomplishment of man's salvation. I love it. We want... At our church, and we've been doing it for 20 years now, if you're new, it's not a new thing, to continue to let all of Scripture be emphasized and not promote any particular system or theological preference. Just when it's there, it's there. Say it, say it, say it, say it. I've been your pastor for almost 20 years now, and I take it as one of the highest compliments. If you've been here a while, then there's no secret what I believe and what our church believes about election and the sovereignty of God. But I'll have people sometimes say to me or email me, Brad, you are the most Arminian Calvinist that I've ever heard preach. (laughs) To God be the glory. If you've since, I mean, he preaches his heart out like people could actually come. Yeah. Like people can respond and repent and put their faith in Jesus. Yes. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see Jesus preaching that way and the disciples preaching that way. If you read through the book of Acts, you'll see them calling people to repent and lifting up Jesus, proclaiming the good news. I want to preach how they preached. I'm not about, and our church is not about, promoting or protecting any theological system. We are about lifting up a Savior and spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. And I think when I do that, I'm doing the same thing the Apostle Paul was doing when he said in Acts chapter 20 to the Christians in Ephesus. He'd been there three years teaching and he was about to leave them and go on to plant some other churches. And he says to them on the beach as they wept on his neck and they prayed together, I have not shunned to declare to you, how much of God's word? The whole counsel of God's word. When I stand before God, and I will, to give an account for how I shepherded and pastored here, I want to be able to say, I know I was wrong in places. I'm going to say, oh, wow. But I do want to be able to say, I tried to give the whole counsel of God's word. Not just parts and pieces and what we're most comfortable with and what we could fully explain. So, keep all the biblical truth in focus. And you can do that best by reading how much of your Bible? All of it. Number two, how we can keep this in balance. Number two, keep the biblical language in place. And I already got ahead of myself and gave that away. Don't start using Calvinist and Arminian. Are you a Calvinist? Are you Arminian? And then draw swords. Die, you Arminian. (laughs) Folks, I know we got people in our church that are heavier on this side. And we got people in our church that are heavier on this side. News alert. We got people that don't speak in tongues. We got people that do speak in tongues. (gasps) And I am thrilled that we have all gotten along for 20 years. Because we've made the main thing the main thing. 
Jesus Christ and the hope of the gospel. So don't, one of the best ways to not end up in camps and attack each other and condemn each other is to keep using Bible words and don't exchange them for man-made words. And, and you know what, the other reason I don't like Calvinist and Arminian, because they're based on two earthly men. I don't follow Jacobus Arminius, and I don't follow John Calvin. He drowned some people. He did some bad things. I want to follow Jesus. Jesus. So I'm going to keep just saying, hey, I want to teach the Bible, and I believe God's sovereign. I believe that we must respond. I, I must take this good message. Here's, here's something I've noticed. If you listen to me long enough, you will pick up and think, hmm, he sounds like he believes this side of the rope. And I've had people come up to me after a service right here. It's happened right here many times and say, are you a Calvinist? And I've learned to answer that question with a question because it's very Jesus-like. And I'll say, what do you mean by Calvinist? And I've never heard a different answer than what I'm about to say. Oh, there's no need to pray, no need to witness, no need to send missionaries. God's already decided who's going to hell and who's going to heaven. There's nothing you can do about it. And I'm like, Nope, I'm not. See, that's their definition of Calvinist. That is not what I believe. As soon as you take a label, you can allow other people to stuff you into places. It's not even what you believe because words throughout time and history that what, one time something that was a good word can begin to change and people can have very negative associations with that word. And you don't realize when you drop a word that's loaded like that, they're not listening anymore and their mind is whirling and spinning with what they think you said that you might not even meant. It's not what you believe. Does that make sense? So let's not, in our small groups, divide up and say, our icebreaker tonight is we're going to divide up. Different sides of the room. Who's more Arminian, free will, man, you on that side? Sovereignty of God people in the kitchen with the snacks and the good coffee. <laughs> let's not do that. Put the Arminians in the kitchen with the snacks and the good coffee, okay? If you're going to do that. Keep using Bible words, not man-made words. Give you an example of what I mean. People don't, don't always hear what you think that you meant to say. If you've got kids, then you, you know this. One of the most delightful things about kids or grandkids, I hope to experience it all over again, is just the hysterical things they say that make no sense but makes perfect sense to them because they didn't really hear you or really understand what you meant. I've got five kids that are now 26 to 15, but when they were little, oh, tons of funny stuff. And I remember one night reading an bi- autobiography out loud to the kids of Sergeant York. It's a great story, by the way, and there's a black and white movie at the library you can check out that's really good. So I'm reading this autobiography on Sergeant York, and he's talking about his growing up years in rural Kentucky and Tennessee, how the town was so small, they didn't have their own pastor, but they were dependent on a, a pastor that would come through every now and then to preach, do baptisms, weddings, and funerals. You just had to pile them up until he got there. And so I said to the kids, our, he said he had a circuit-riding preacher. I said, hey, kids, what's a circuit-riding preacher? And my, my older son Harrison said, oh, That's a preacher that travels and goes from town to town to town. I said, that's right. What was he probably riding? And Kelly, who was much younger at the time, said, a camel. (laughs) We're all just like, no, Kelly, not a camel. Kentucky, Tennessee, probably a horse. And she says right back, well, you said a circus riding preacher. (laughs) And so I thought it might be a camel. It's not just kids. 
It happens to us as adults, and you won't realize you've said something, and that person no longer is really tracking with you. They're way off somewhere else. And it happens most often with theological issues when you start using man-made words instead of Bible words. Stick with the Bible. Use biblical language. And number three, if we're going to keep balanced on these two truths of this theological rope called salvation, of God's electing love and man's responsibility to repent and respond and believe. My third one is actively promote. Actively promote unity. And don't allow this great doctrine to be a wedge that divides us. Did you know that this, this is on all of us? I can't produce unity. I pray for it. As I pray every week for all of you and I pray through the directory, I pray for unity. I know it's one of our most precious things and most easily lost. But folks, I can't pull it off on my own. What if all of us were obeying Ephesians 4 that says, promote unity, pursue unity, work at this. It won't just happen, you're gonna, which means you're going to have to defer to each other and prefer each other and be humble and don't attack and condemn. We're going to have differences in a church family this size. Oh my goodness, we're going to have differences. But he calls us to be working on unity. Let me show you that from Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says, after three great chapters of doctrine... Then he turns towards practical now, live it out like this. And he says in chapter 4, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, exhort you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring, endeavoring to keep The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Folks, we already have a very real enemy, Satan, that's coming against us. We already have the world around us that will attack us often enough. What is so sad is when Christians in-house begin to bite and devour and attack each other on top of all that. I know we're sinners, so it can happen. But if everybody was thinking, you know what? I need to be lowly-minded. I need to... prefer that person and think of them better than me we tend to begin to think once we believe something and someone else doesn't we think we're better than them and we look down on them we condemn them or we attack them preserving the unity in the bond of peace and then look look where he goes next in verse four there's one body now he's going to emphasize what we all agree on there's one body one faith one baptism one god and father of all who's above all and through all and in you all. I want to close with a great illustration of what I hope would be true here in our church family. And by God's grace, I hope you've sensed from me, I haven't been scared about this topic. I haven't been like, oh, it's Romans 9, it's going to split the church. Oh, We've already talked about this and here we are. We're still this big. Because every time it comes up, I try to present it the way I just presented it to you and I found most people don't, don't go wheeling out of here saying, what? It's when someone's hyper on this end that you say, oh, I, can't, I can't live with that. I can't deal with that. In history, church history, it's well known. George Whitfield and John Wesley were two great evangelists. Get this, two great evangelists that both preached the gospel, both sacrificed, and God used both of them to lead thousands of people to Christ, both in England and in America. George Whitfield preached to some of the largest crowds ever without amplification. 
Benjamin Franklin lived at the same time as him and did a little study and a test, no surprise with Ben Franklin, counting the bodies and figuring out how far his voice would project and amazing evangelist that lifted up Christ. And he was strong over here on God's election, but he preached to everyone. John Wesley was stronger over here and his whole life began to birth out Methodism, the Methodist church. And he rode horseback thousands of miles all over America preaching the gospel. They disagreed strongly on this issue. And it was publicly known and they wrote letters back and forth. So one day someone grabbed John Wesley and said, Do you think that you'll see George Whitfield in heaven? Do you think he's a converted man? you think he's a Christian? And John Wesley said, No. And the guy said, Oh. So you don't think he's a Christian? You don't think he's a converted man? And he said, of course he's a Christian and a converted man. The reason I said I won't see him in heaven is because he'll be so close to the throne of God and I so far away that I won't be able to see him. That's humility. That's humility. A humble orthodoxy. I want you to hold to doctrine. I want you to know that doctrine matters, but people matter also. We're to love people, starting right here, each other, and prefer each other, and forbear with each other, whatever we believe, to the glory of God. And I want us to emphasize what we can all agree on, that the gospel of God's grace changes lives. That the, that the gospel goes out and is a free offer to all, whoever will believe, and that every single person who ever puts their trust in Christ is an object of God's mercy and not something they merited. May the reputation of this church and word out on the street never be that we're Calvinist or Arminian, but that we love Jesus, love people, and hold humbly to the whole counsel of God's word.